The end. A weight lifted. A threat quelled. Heroes made. Our party find themselves stood in the desolate surroundings of the Blightland, wondering what to do and where to go. Welcome, listener, to the epilogue of the Fellowship of the Tabletop. The warm sun breaks through the clouds as the party and those of the Obsidianist form a column, making their way slowly back to comfort and safety. As the party begin to head back south to the direction of Spiritmond Redoubt, the wind stills around the party and an almighty glow emanates from Drago's amulet. Brood, cargoing the corpse of Claude, kneels and allows the body to gently slip to the ground. Moments later, the same black hand-like wisps that pulled the undead back into the eternal plane appear around Claude's body. After a few seconds, Claude is gone, vanished beneath the ground. The winds drum up again, this time carrying a whisper. To some ears, it is Claude's voice. To others, it is Akiva's. Thank you. Eternally will your songs be sung in my halls. In the weeks and months following the events deep in the Blightlands, the destruction of Grazit, the turn of Elthir, the closing of the Rift, and the loss of Claude and Folly, the party begin to look inward to try to make sense of a world without the constant threat of the Blight. The lands surrounding the tower heal over time. Life returns in its most simple form. In the form of moss, weeds, small flowers. But soon, strong spring winds carry pollen and seeds down from the mountains which populate the now peaty and fertile grounds. Small animals, mice, rabbits and the like find refuge from predators in the craters and divots caused by war. Ducks and geese set up in the multitude of lakes and small rivers formed in the now scarred lands. The sound of life and nature return once more to these once rich forests. But nothing grows on the tower. It stays stuck in time. Dark, but unthreatening. Lifeless, but safe. A monument to the events that took place for all of Aerith to see. Tributes from nine of the eleven nations pour into Goldview. Huge piles of gold are brought in from the Horal Empire and the Sanguine Lands. Weaponry coated in gold, long arched finesse swords from Dralak flood into the capital. Even the dwarves, hidden away far in the east, provide an immensely rare and huge gemstone to be housed in Goldview as a sign of respect for all those living and all those who fought against the Blight. Yet, the Abkriskra still run Goldview. The Abkriskra still run Sleekguard. With a young and inexperienced queen in Helena, they try to solidify their control over the west of Erith, using Helena as a figurehead more than a monarch. 
Much of the gold is stored away and the gemstone hidden from the public. There are announcements that all those who fought and died would have their families remunerated, and those who survived allowed to retire from combat on a salary paid by the Sleepguard government. Some speak of this being pittance. Some speak of it never materialising. And some speak of something darker happening to the veterans of the Blight. The Sleetguard surge, the force developed to train and fight the Blight, is disbanded. Their soldiers, now well-trained and battle-hardened, find no end of jobs and companies who will hire their services. With the end of the Blight comes a whole new threat to take its place. Goldview. Two weeks later. A whistling tune echoes down the cold and barren road that is Union Pass at midnight. A figure in white saunters down, holding a note in his hand. A thin smile stretches across his face, feet pacing nimbly across the cobblestones. A single bird flies high overhead. He follows the bird in the moonlight, its broad wingspan silhouetted against the night sky. Suddenly, a trip. The man in white stumbles, hears a groan. Looking down, he sees a human curled up in a doorway, cradling a very expensive bottle of port. Oh, how about you walk around me next time, my good man? The figure slurs. The man in white takes a double look back at the figure and walks off into the distance before turning on Zavita Square and disappearing from sight. Sebastian stretches momentarily takes another quick sip of the port and shuffles his jacket into a comfortable position under his head as he shuts his eyes once more. But his sleep is restless. He has visions, memories of events that have long since passed. He remembers the falling rain, the return of Helena, the dread and determination in the eyes of Claude, the focus of Drago. Claude. Folly. His dream takes him back to a memory, a scene which replays over and over. It evokes such heartbreak, not due to his connection with the people involved, but how it affected his sister. Dark clothing, flowers, somber music and a slow procession. Bowed heads and muted small talk, past tense memories of folly, fond tidbits of Claude. The large plinth in Vita Square holds an array of memorabilia from the past. Lucian approaches, helped by Helena. He is still trying to work out how best to work the contraption that allows him to move without legs. It seems to be part cart, a mobile cart which allows him to sit without falling. Apparently a shadow mend invention. Who cares though? Helena's face, heartbroken forlorn. Sebastian is sure he sees defiance deep in there though, hidden through the sorrow. Talia approaches the plinth. She lays down Claude's executioner's axe. I know you're both looking out for us. He isn't sure if it was in his memory or this is part of his drink-addled dream state, but he sees three figures stood off to the right of Talia, smiling. A plump man, a gnome, and a dwarf. The clouds cover the somber scene and the figures disappear. Slowly, the thousands that gathered for the funeral rites trickle away until a small huddle, a strange mix of humans and a dragonborn, stand close 
arms supporting each other. Sebastian stirs from his sleep again and turns into the doorway from protection from the slight breeze coming up the street. This had better be worth it, he mutters to himself. Helena owes me big time. The thud of an empty glass vibrates the hard oak table. Canard wipes his mouth and looks sheepishly up to Tali, who gives an exacerbated look and pours another. She brings it to him and takes it the empty without a word. As Canard looks back from Tali with a wry smile, he looks around the half-hoof inn. It is full of revellers. Since the legalisation of Akiva, this tavern has taken on two jobs, that of a bar and that of a shrine. The revelry and noise above is a stark contrast to the solitude and hushed whispers in the basement below, where followers of the Eternal Ones may come to pay their respects to Claude and their deity. The day of the funeral rites had been mental, in Kennard's own words. He had never seen a tavern as busy as the half-oof in that day, and custom didn't seem to be waning. She was dealing with it well, Tally. A good eye for a deal and a good grasp on financials. Kennard stayed in case things got hairy, but he knew full well that Tali was more powerful. He stays for the connection to the past. The past he wanted so badly to remember, but never wanted to relive. The nightmares kept returning. Sleep was never restful these days. Canard grasps his new drink. The air is musty and warm. The fire's bright. A group of patrons start up a song, and soon there's a loud chorus singing along. Tali shakes her head and smiles, but does not join in. One day she might, Canard thinks to himself. He follows the smoke up as it curls around the dark oak beams of the tavern and takes a long, deep breath. Are you Canard? A voice announces. Kennard's head snaps to the place seat next to him. Something about this human seems so normal and unimpressive. His face so forgetful, his features so dreary, clothes white and neat. His lips pulled, purse and taut. Well, are you? He repeats. What's it to you? Kennard lazily draws back, hand resting on the dagger concealed up his left sleeve. He kicks back in his chair. The figure does not move. His eyes twinkle in the firelight. Everything seems quieter. His face so still. I must know to whom I speak, the man retorts. Listen, I was through playing games when the blight snuffed it, so either you speak your piece and leave me be. This is a time for celebration. Tali catches Kennard's eye. She's concerned. He shakes his head to assuage her fears. She returns to serving, but her book now rests on the bar. Right hand leant on it. I will take from your obstinance that you are indeed Kennard of the Blackmouth Rangers, though I am happy you kept this information from me. This bodes well for what is to come. Tell me, do you have much in the ways of family here? Kennard looks puzzled. What's going on, he thinks to himself, trying to remember if or when he had wronged another. Was this comeuppance or an opportunity? Uh, no, he murmurs back. Excellent. Let's keep it that way, for now, at least. It will make things easier for you and your mission. My mission? Now, listen, there are a good number of things I will do for coin in this world. A good number. 
But there are but five or six people I would work for. Two are dead, one stands behind that bar, and you, sir, are not one of the other two. Now, I suggest you get right to your point before you get to mine. His dagger is drawn, the hilt hidden under the palm of his hand, but the tip protrudes an inch under his middle finger. He doesn't want a fight. He just wants to enjoy his ale. The thin smile of the stranger stretches across his face into part grimace, part smile as the eyes flick to the threat. I'm sure she has her reasons for involving you. Fiercely loyal, it seems, though not one for subtlety. That will have to change. My leader bade me give you this. You need not ask questions. I will not know their answers. All I must do is hear I or nay. The figure extends a thin and sinewy arm with a note in the hand. Kennard is intrigued and angry. His heart is racing. He looks to Tali, her book still on the counter, though her eyes are busy placating Holgreth after Tenethor just insulted the side of his biceps. Kennard snatches the note and opens it. He places it flat on the table and scans the note while sipping from his ale. There is no taste now. The adrenaline pumps his blood to his hands and feet. His heart races. His face flushes with red as he reads. Kennard. The blight has ended. The real war begins. The real me needs to disappear. My return must be in secret. We will eat them up from the inside. There are politics in Goldsview. Factions that are vying for power. Ours must overwhelm. We must bring the factions together. It is the only way to bring them down. Their power is great, but their experimentation makes them vulnerable. You need to infiltrate their ranks. Your contact will help to facilitate your promotion. Your rise must be meteoric, their destruction cataclysmic. You must infiltrate the Abkriskra. You will be my eyes and ears. Your contact, a friend of yours and mine, the brooding human with a bow, will be the only way to get in contact with me. But until you hear from him, don't try to find me. Don't try to contact me. We must remain strangers. But we must overcome. For the good of Sleekgard. For the good of Aerith. The note is hastily pocketed as Kennard sheathes the dagger. Ugh, you could have just said who you worked for, he scoffs as he sees off the rest of his ale. Aye, I'm in. The figure smiles, showing a line of perfect teeth. He rises and leaves as silently and as unnoticed as he had entered. Kennard looks down at his shaking hands. He breathes them under control. Once more, he says to himself, for Sleetgard. The figure, in white, leaves the bustle of the half-hoof inn, takes a left, a right, another right, and nods to a dwarven woman who locks eyes. She passes further through the streets, masked in darkness, to a group of children playing on a street corner. She nods to them. They turn and sprint across the bridge and down to the gardens of Teriani. One young boy with a splash of blonde hair sprawls into the garden first. The others groan. He smiles. He walks in slowly, victorious looking around. Sweat sticks his hair to his head, brushes it out his eyes, darting left and right. A small, moonlit grove appears on his right. 
he silently approaches. He sees the tall and battle-worn figure of his queen, of Helena Sleekgard, knelt in prayer. Stood with her is Robin. Next to him, a member of the court, and standing separate from them all, is a man wearing a purple robe, a senior member of the Abkriskra. The Abkriskra mage turns violently round and is about to speak when a steel arrow thuds at the feet of the boy. He gasps as Robin reaches for a second. Boy, how dare you approach the Queen of Sleetgard? The old man in the purple robes booms. Helena winces at this break of the silence. Reginus, there is no need to shout. The child was obviously lost his way. I'm sure Sir Dustin Ghostbane's arrow has put the fear of the gods in him. She turns slowly and stands to look at the boy, taking him in. She slowly pushes up to a standing position and walks closer to him, locking eyes the whole time. Suddenly, a knowing look enters her eye. She reaches down and rips out the arrow buried deep in the ground at the boy's feet. Well, she whispers. The boy nods. Helena winks and hands the arrow to him. Off we go, boy. He sprints off, arrow in hand, eyes wide. He sprints past the gasps and calls from his friends, crosses the river and through the square. He darts through the nighttime revelers and dashes into a well-known alley. He pauses, hands on knees, looks at the arrow and smiles. He stashes it up his sleeve as he opens a wooden door to the right. Just next to it is a large barrel where Lavina and he used to scramble up when they were little sprats. Now it's no more than a single leap to traverse. Out hellfire's time, boy, booms a haggard man sat in a small squat room. The ceiling is low and he is hunched over a book near the roaring fire. The house is the same, but it seems so much smaller since mum died. He seems so much smaller too. The light in his eye has diminished. With a flick of his hair from his eyes, the boy winces as way of an apology and runs upstairs to bed. The man tuts and strokes his messy black and grey beard. Needs a trim soon. He shakes his head and takes a long, deep sigh. The same sigh he has taken ever since Lily's death. He angles himself and counts the final few pages of his book. Might as well finish it tonight, he mutters as he reads. Hello, readers. Yes, it is me, Karstan. Had to make sure I had one final word after all. Things did have a sorrowful ending, I know. We won, and that really was the important part to take away from all of that. I could talk a great deal about the others. Helena, Drago, Robin, and even little Tali. But they have already shared their parts in their worlds. And I faithfully say I wrote down what they said verbatim. Though I did have to explain what that meant to Drago. Claude. He was the older brother I never had. Horst, if you are reading this, don't pull a face. Firstly, I'm surprised as you that you have actually managed to get this far into a book. And secondly, quite frankly, you are an ass. I'm famous, so shove that. <clears throat> Sorry, reader. Sometimes uh, thoughts get away from me. Claude was such a force in all our lives. I do dearly miss him. He impressed upon me a great and weighty burden to try and be there for Helena as a knight and to help her rebuild Sleetgard. 
though that is another story that I won't recount here. Folly. That little eccentric and sometimes explosive gnome. He did what had to be done. Everyone thanks him for that. I will miss him, though. I feel we had more conversations to have. He was, after all, a fellow son of the sanguine lands. And though he came from the south, I never held it against him. I think Folly would have enjoyed searching for Ogramorph, the chicken wizard I mentioned in chapter 4, and maybe going on some more adventures. Drago intends to go back with Elthea, which I am jealous of. I wish I could go back with him, but I have duties here. Maybe when I have learned of the plane shifting from Ogramorph, I will go back and find him. His friend, Elthea, for all his faults, I'm sure has a harrowing tale to tell. Though now is not the time to ask him. Robin, of course, tends to remain here, which I'm sure gives me a chance to get some more of his tales from the Sword Coast written down. There are still plenty of mysteries left in Sleetgard. Once we have restored Helena to her kingdom, maybe she and Robin will travel with me back to Blackmouth. I would dearly like to show her the garden we found high up in those mountains. There is also those vampires in Goldview, which hopefully Robin won't drop a ceiling on me again if we visit. And there is Ogramorph, the dear chicken wizard. I, I do want to seek him out and learn from him all I can. I do apologise for the sometimes strange conversations I had with him. I wrote them down as best I could, but given the nature of his words, I'm sure there are bits I have omitted. So, what now for Aerith? Though we have won, it did come at a cost. I know the armies of Sleetgard and the Sanguine Lands will be counting the cost for many years to come. I hope the peace of the Eleven Kingdoms holds true, even if the threat of the Blight no longer hangs over all of us. But that is a tale for the future, one that I intend to write, if the gods allow me. So, now, traveller, I thank you for walking with me on this journey. Maybe we will meet again sometime in the future. Maybe it'll be your story that I end up telling. The old man snorts with derision. <laughs> Bloody bards, he sighs as he clambers to his feet, tossing the book on a nearby table. Always looking for the next big story. The loud thud of this verse of Karstan's tales reverberates through the thin wall and a young halfling jolts to wake. Quietly cursing Fess in his late-night reading, she turns over, knowing that she will soon have to get up. The sun will be rising, and her work begins. She groans and lurches out of bed, stepping over Tristan, her brother, sprawled out on the floor mattress. Quick splash of day-old water over the face and a change of clothes. She steps outside into the crisp, pre-dawn air with some bread in her hand. She ties back her brown hair and starts moving her tongue around her mouth, pressing it into the cheeks, pulling an array of faces, moving the lips. She takes a right, then heads down Union Pass. People are waking and beginning their day as the sun slowly begins to rise, casting an orange hue over the buildings, but casting long shadows. She sees the road open up. Vita, the new name given to the trading square in the middle of the city. The name never really struck true to her, but she understood its reverence. Next to Greetler's corn stall, the halfling throws on her light blue jacket, straightens her ponytail, 
takes a deep inhalation of breath and lets it all out. She pulls a small sheet of notes from her pocket and reads the top line. Folly, Fizzlebang, ninth. She nods, remembering her job. She pulls herself up onto the three stacked crates, brushes her clothing off and begins. Good people of Goldview, Vita Square greets you on this fine day. I, Lasariel, stand before you to tell of one of our heroes of Sleekguard, one of the fallen. We all know what happened on that fateful day when the tenacious and selfless folly threw himself into the rift to save us all. But what do we know of his legacy? What has changed? I have here the most complete, the most up-to-date and the most reverend telling of all that is Fizzlebang. Word quickly began to spread of Folly Fizzlebang's sacrifice. His fellow heroes of Sleekguard would tell stories of their adventure, reveling in some of Folly's best and worst moments. From blowing himself up while preparing for the Battle of Bleakmoor, to brewing a high-level stock magic potion in the blackest of prison cells, which can neither be confirmed nor denied and therefore would not hold up in a court of law. With no record of family or friends to be found, an orphanage that Folly had donated to a few days before the end of the blight was believed to be where he was raised. It seemed he hailed from Evershire. Our Lady Alicia's orphanage, which had fallen on hard times, was dealing with some of the aftermath of a mendacious arson attack from the cold rats, but suddenly seemed to be inundated with further donations from people wanting to pay tribute to Folly Fizzlebang. Before long, the orphanage had grown and expanded to soon become the Folly Fizzlebang the Ninth's Orphanage and Non-Stock Magic Academy, spearheaded by Talion Hellfire, the upstanding citizen of Goldview. The Academy would attempt to save those made orphans through war and give them a purpose. But many still ask upon the now infamous backpack, upon clearing the wreckage around the Blight and the Black Tower. Folly's backpack was the only item that remained. Despite all attempts, both magical and physical, no one was able to remove the backpack or identify exactly what enchantments had been infused into it. Assumed to be a creation of Folly's, the backpack would remain there, its final resting place. Many still try to move it. In fact, competitions and tours have begun for those wanting to test their metal against the immovable backpack. What remained of Folly was pulled into the void. Where he went, us mortals may never know. But there is a crowd of fifty around Lasariel, all listening intently through bleary early morning eyes. If we were to imagine, if we were to take what we know now about Akiva, we might make some educated assumptions, if you will pardon my humble digression. I think it happened like this. Believing himself to be smarter than most, and for good reason, I believe he attempted to use his magic to plane shift from where he had ended back to Erith. But even the simplest of spells does not work in the eternal plane. He could no longer manage. He wandered by himself, a desolate darkness for what seemed like an age, until he was eventually greeted by a gruff, large hand that was placed on his shoulder, tentatively. Our hero turns around, not knowing what horrors he might find in this eternal night. But instead, 
is greeted by the warm, smiling face of a dwarf who politely introduces himself as Shadar, one of the early travelling companions of the party and a good friend. Together, they look over us all, the living, filling us with hope, courage and pride in our lives, our city, our sleet guard. The crowd erupts into applause. Many eyes are wiped and smiles shared. Hugs and handshakes pass from person to person as the bard nearby who has been politely waiting and listening intently strikes up a rousing number as people disperse to their wares, their shopping and their browsing. <sighs> Job well done, murmurs Lasariel. I think I deserve some breakfast. She hops gracefully off the boxes and takes a right down along by the river. The early morning mist is beginning to lift, but the city is still quiet. She passes a small loading square for the nearby shops and strides towards the most popular tavern in town, the Half Hoof Inn, home to almost all her adventuring stories nowadays. You stay in there long enough and someone is bound to share a great story worth telling. As she approaches the large oak-panelled door, a figure steps through into the light. The tall, weathered but serene figure of a dragonborn. Lasariel gasps and leaps out of the way, hopefully hiding herself from his view, hoping to follow this hero and learn of more stories to tell. She steps behind a pair of barrels and pushes her eye to the crack to watch. Drago adjusts his eyes to the crisp morning. The early hour meant that the town of Goldview is still yet to succumb to its usual hustle and bustle, and this is how Drago likes it. Peaceful. Taking in a deep breath, he begins his customary journey, taking the Union Pass out of Goldview to the nearest hill. As Lasariel stands to follow, she feels a tug at her blue jacket, turning around to a mess of ginger hair and stern expression. Leave him be, lassie. Not today. This hill is his favourite spot. It is always quiet and offers the best views in the town below. Here, with the sun rising, illuminating his back, Drago kneels down and bows his head. Closing his eyes, he reaches out with his mind to connect with his God. There is no prayer this morning, nothing in which Drago needs to talk about, and yet what had become a daily ritual, Drago practices his mindfulness, feeling the ebbs and flows of his paladin bond. Drago smiles as he thinks of what Claude would say if he could see him now. Probably something along the lines of where is your egg and why are your clothes still on? Chuckling to himself, Drago stands and heads back to Goldview. Today is a big day, one that Drago thought was never going to happen. Making his way into the half-hoof inn, he is greeted by the sight of Tali. She's cleaning down from last night's punters, Kennard is taking what he referred to as a hero's nap in the corner. Honestly, running a bar isn't easy stuff, thought Drago, as he set about helping. He was staying rent-free, after all. So, today's the day, eh? I'm sure I can't convince you otherwise. Sorry, Tali, replied Drago. But you know how it is. I've got to put some things to rest. Drago puts the final chair away and then looks over to his friend. I hope you know how much I've appreciated the last few weeks, getting me back on my feet, giving me a place to say. Aye, I know, 
And likewise, it's been good having some muscle around to throw out some of the uh, more difficult punters <laughs> that frequent here, as well as those pilgrims that pop down to the basement. <laughs> yeah, not a bad job. Still, you know what I have to do. Aye, I know. And you know there's always a place here. Indeed. Just give me a moment to gather my stuff. Drago heads upstairs and grabs his worn, tattered satchel and throws it over his shoulder. Looking over to his weapons, he starts to place them on himself, the mighty axe of Shadar on his left hip, Claude's shield bastion strapped to his right arm. And finally, with a grunt of effort, he swings his late father's greatsword, Dengon's deception, on his back. A knock at the door makes him turn around. Uh... Can I borrow you for a moment? Tali asks. Sure. And following Tali, they head back downstairs into the cellar in which Tali's famous brew is kept. She won't tell anyone what the secret ingredient is that makes it fizz in the mouth. The basement, however, has changed since the Eternal Ones joined the Triumvirate, legalising the faith of Akiva. Muddy footprints walk up to a small candle with etchings adorning the wooden floor. What do you want me to do with this? Tali points to the corner of the room. In the corner, laid flat, is a sizable glass container. You could almost mistake it for a coffin, save for the fact that it's transparent in its appearance. White smoke fills and swirls around the inside of the container. However, as Drago walks closer and pushes his eyes to the glass, there is an undeniable shadow formed in the shape of a dragonborn. Drago winces. He always tries to forget about this. As for as comfortable as magic as he was getting, some things were still pretty weird to him. I, um... Uh, can you just, uh, maybe just... Leave it where it is, interrupted Tali. Yeah, says Drago sheepishly. Look after it as I have been, continued Tali, in such a way that indicated she already knew the answer, but wanted to point out the inconvenience of it anyway. Hey... At least part of me will stay here, said Drago in a failed attempt at a joke. Fine, but don't make me regret it. No, by the faith of Akiva, you won't, smiled Drago. Ah. Come here, you big lug, said Tali as he pulled him in for a hug. You take care of yourself out there. Don't go fighting any more demigods without me. Ah, I promise those days are well behind me. I don't think I could survive it twice, said Drago as he breaks the hug and starts to walk towards the bar. You take care too, Tali. Keep studying your father's book. Or, you know, Robin will have something to say about it. <laughs> once I know it. Never one to be comfortable with emotional goodbyes, Drago steps back towards the front door, opens it, and with a final look back, he nods towards his dear friend, before stepping out into the light of Goldview. Heading towards the stables, he thinks over what the day ahead will bring. He was finally going to return home, back to the Sword Coast. Despite the hardship of leaving his newfound family behind, Drago knew the time had come to make good on his promises to his friends. Shadar's death was still to be honoured, his family was still unaware of his passing, and Drago felt that the responsibility to tell them lay on his shoulders. 
As a token of respect, he wanted Shadar's weapon to be returned to the dwarf's family. Robin also needed to resolve some of his own family matters. When the two had said goodbye to each other the night before, he asked Drago to find his sister, Ren, and if possible, get her to make the journey to Aerith. After everything the two of them had been through, there was scarcely anyone Drago trusted or respected more. If finding and securing his sister would allow him to continue doing the good work he was going to do with Helena, Drago owed it to him to try. At least, Drago wouldn't be heading back to the Sword Coast alone. Drago hears Brood before he sees him. His horse certainly has a stubborn way about himself. His towering presence makes people nervous. Entering the stables, Drago laughs as he sees the stable hands practice the art of giving Brood food without having to touch him. Walking over to him, Drago roughly pats the neck of the horse. Come on, boy. It's time to go, Drago said, getting up on the saddle and settling Brood into a trot out the stables. Heading towards the outskirts of town, he saw a small group of ex-soldiers. They had taken to calling themselves the Purge, a not-so-clever play on Surge. These were the survivors from the Sleetguard Surge, the now disbanded force to fight the blight. They signal Drago with a wave and a salute. Drago responds in kind. Standing next to the group, his hands and feet enchained, is the pale, gaunt shell of an elf. Bound and forlorn stands Elthea. Upon their return, Drago and Robin had almost come to blows with members of the Purge about what to do with Elthea. With Helena's intervention and pardon from execution, Elthea was tossed back to the care of Drago and Robin, against the will of the Purge. They had sat in the half-hoof inn for hours deciding what to do. Drago recalled the conversation he had had with Robin about his return. They had been of one mind, like they had been on so many decisions through their adventures. Drago remembers the farewell, and as they had embraced, he fondly remembered the bond of brotherhood, unshaken and unbroken parted by a mutual sense of fulfilling promises and righting wrongs. Drago remembers the feeling of finality when Robin handed over his bow, begrudgingly taking it from his hands. He remembered the words of Robin, or rather, Sir Dustin Ghostbane had spoken as they parted. That bow belongs to Neverwinter. Commit it to the high forest, and it may find a new wielder some day. Bury this book with it. May the legend inspire another, as it did me. As Sir Dustin shoves a well-thumbed leather-bound book in Drago's chest with a playful but exact movement, he mutters somewhat to himself, somewhat to Drago. And so Robin of Neverwinter returns to the pages of lore. With a smile on his face, Robin turns around and leaves the tavern. Brood continued towards the group of the Purge with the saunter. Drago thinks of Neverwinter and the forests surrounding it. It feels like an age since he was there. Was that Elthir's home? Some long discussion was needed before they got back. His hand suddenly reaches for the book Robin gave him. Return to the pages of law. I hope that idiot hasn't put himself in a book again. Drago couldn't help but smile confusing the men who were now stood a few feet away from him. With a reluctant nod and some trepidation, the chains that hold Elthea are released, yet he does not move. 
Drago reaches down and grabs the back of Elthir's jacket, like a mother lion lifting her young, places Elthir on the back of Brood. As he had been ever since his mind was released from Grazit, Elthir is silent. Drago should just let Elthir be Elthir and enjoyed the peace and quiet. Brood canters over the same hill Drago had been praying at earlier that morning. A warm breeze had started to take the lands. Breathing in deep, Drago calms his emotions. A while back, he had stopped letting himself think about this home. Being honest with himself, he never truly expected to live through this ordeal. It was not lost on him the reason as to why he survived. Gripping Claude's amulet, Drago closes his eyes and connects his mind with Akiva. After a moment of wordless communication, Drago opens his eyes to find a portal in front of him, a swirling vortex of purples and blacks, silent. Taking one last look back at the lands of Erith, Drago sends out a prayer of faith to his family. Helena, Karstan, Tali, Robin. With another sigh, he sends out a second prayer to those lost. Shadow, Folly, Claude. Thank you, Drago says out loud before Brood takes him and Elthir through the portal and back home to the Sword Coast in search of home for Elthir and a sister for Robin. present day, one year on from the purge of the blight, the euphoria of victory well and truly dissipated, dark, night, clouded, rain pouring on the muddied streets of Goldview, back alley near the now abandoned Sleekguard Surge training area, a figure stands cradling a candle to keep the light, his look darts out left and right, an impatience in his demeanour. He looks up at the sky and his face is quickly moist with the rain. A figure rushes by and bumps him. Left shoulder. He does not react. He looks down to his left hand and sees a note placed within it. He smiles. Opens. Reads. They grow too mighty. They grow too arrogant. It is time for the people to rise. Bellum Draconis. It comes. <laughs> 